The House comes to oral questions. The first in the name of Dan Fedwa. Thank you, Mr Speaker. To the Minister of Finance, what recent reports has she seen on the costs of living? Speaker. Last week, Stats New Zealand released the Consumer Price Index for the final quarter of last year. This showed that inflation was 4.7 per cent in the year to December. While that is an improvement on the 5.6 per cent inflation in September, it is still far too high. And what is really striking is when one looks over a longer time frame. The Stats NZ figures show, for example, that over the last three years, prices have risen a total of 19%. That 19% in only three years represents a cost of living crisis that has eroded the real value of people's incomes and savings and has made their lives much more expensive. Supplementary. Is New Zealand's inflation rate being driven by overseas factors? To some extent, yes, but to a greater extent, no. Inflation is influenced. Mr Robertson should listen because I think he'll learn something. Inflation is influenced by global disruptions that raise the price of imports. Right now, for example, supply chains are under considerable strain from the Red Sea attacks and the Panama drought. But global factors are not the main contributors to inflation. The Stats NZ figures from last week show that tradables inflation, covering goods and services that are imported or that compete with foreign goods, has dropped significantly. On the other hand, non-tradables inflation has stayed stubbornly high. So domestic factors, rather than global factors, are playing the greatest role in driving inflation right now. Supplementary. Uh, what has the government been doing to help bring down inflation? Last year, the government introduced legislation which this House passed to bring back a single mandate for monetary policy. That mandate is price stability. Having a single price stability mandate has served New Zealand well since its introduction more than 30 years ago. And the experiment of the last five years of having a dual mandate failed spectacularly. This government went back to a single mandate to ensure that monetary policy decision makers and those observing them have no doubt that busting inflation is our goal and that they are to have an unerring focus on achieving price stability. Supplementary. What else is the government doing to help with the costs of living? The government's 100-day plan contains a number of measures to help New Zealanders hit by large increases in the cost of living. Nothing can instantly make up... Well, nothing can instantly make up for a 19% increase in costs, but New Zealanders will welcome measures such as cancelling fuel tax increases for the remainder of this term and removing the Auckland Regional Fuel Tax. They will also appreciate the steps our government is taking to ensure maximum value for every taxpayer dollar spent. Later this year, Kiwis can also look forward to a personal income tax reduction that will put more money in their back pocket. Question number two, in the name of the Honourable Chris, Right Honourable Chris Hopkins. Thank you, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Prime Minister. Does he stand by all of his government's statements and actions? Yes, I do, and particularly our government statements on education, uh, which, of course, that member was the Minister of Education for five and a half years. And particularly, I am concerned, and particularly the government is concerned, about the state of kids' school attendance. We have 55 per cent of our kids not going to school regularly, and so I am very proud 
of our government's statements and actions around education, particularly banning mobile phones, making sure we have a one hour of maths, reading and, and writing each and every day at primary and intermediate schools, and importantly, reviewing the curriculum. We care about our kids. We want them to get well educated so they can have a great future. Supplementary. Does he agree with Christopher Luxon on recent changes to smoke-free legislation? Quote, we've been really supportive. Anything to remove, you know, smoking harm, I think is a good thing. If so, what's changed? We're very pleased to see that the current legislation which we're reverting to has actually driven our daily smoking down by two points, back to 6.8, and we're on track to deliver smoke-free 2025. Supplementary question. Will projected government revenue from tobacco sales increase or decrease as a result of his government's decision to wind back changes to smoke-free legislation? This government's very committed to continuing to lower smoking. We don't believe that that government's legislation was actually the right way forward. We believe that we can achieve lower smoking rates with the legislation that exists today. Point of order, Mr Speaker. Uh, I, that may well be the Prime Minister's opinion. It didn't relate to the question that I asked him. Well, in the end, all ministerial answers are opinions to the Minister. So uh, you can ask the question again and we'll, we'll see what happens. Will projected government revenue from tobacco sales increase or decrease as a result of his government's decision to wind back changes to smoke-free legislation? Revenue forecasts are budget sensitive, but we want lower smoking rates across this, across this country. That's what we're going to do. Well, Mr. Supplementary, supplementary well, question. Okay, yeah, sorry. Do, does he agree on, with? Wait on. Wait on. Yes, yeah. I know he's had three, but on the one who calls, right yeah, on Chris Hopkins. Or does he agree with Nicola Willis? Let's get things off right in 2024. He's Let's get things started right in 2024. Well, that's what I'm trying to do. Exactly. I'm going to be the one who wins here. Not if you're going on principle. Principles should win, not personalities. Can I just say this? He's had three questions already. And the next time he's interrupted, this should have been given to the other side of the house, surely. That's uh, look, what um, one, one, of the, one of the things that became slightly, uh, a, well, became a convention in the last parliament was that where the primary questioner continues to ask for supplementaries until their allocation runs out, uh, they're able to do that. If they sit down and hold one back, that's fine. But the Honourable Chris Hipkins uh, wants to get uh, his all out at one uh, go, and I think that's reasonable given the way that we've operated over the last uh, previous three years. Right okay. on Chris Hipkins. Does he therefore agree with Nicola Willis who said, quote, coming back to those extra sources of revenue and other savings areas that will help us to fund tax reduction, we have to remember that the changes to smoke-free legislation had a significant impact on the government's books with about a billion dollars there. If so, why does he think that more people smoking or smoking more is an acceptable way of funding tax cuts? The legislation that we are reverting to is the same legislation that has seen a consistent decrease in daily smoking. If you just look at the last year, it's gone from 8.6% in 2022 down to 6.8% in 2023. The legislation was working, it was driving smoking rates down, and that's what we'll continue to do in government. Right on, Winston Peters. Uh, could I ask the Prime Minister as to whether or not it's axiomatic that if there's a dramatic decline, which is now the world's leading decline in tobacco smoking, then it's quite possible that the incidence of tax will go down as well. And second, that the legislation about which the Leader um, of the Opposition is talking was not constructed by him, but by New Zealand First, which led to the dramatic fall in tobacco smoking in the first place. And that's a fact. I, I agree that the legislation we are wanting to put in place has actually driven smoking rates down and will continue to do so going forward. Right on, Chris Hopkins. Has the 
government requested any advice on freezing tobacco excise? If so, if so why? Uh, not that I'm aware of. Supplementary. The uh, Honourable uh, David Seymour. How much revenue would the government get uh, from illegally smuggled and sold counterfeit cigarettes that are now dominating the Australian market with organised crime taking over and the situation getting out of control? Well, I think the member raises a very good question, which was the problem with the previous government's proposed changes to legislation was that it would encourage a black market and would actually lead to increasing levels of crime and ram raids. If any minister or ministers in his government have received donations from anyone associated with the tobacco lobby, would he regard that as a conflict of interest and exclude them from decision-making on any future changes to smoke-free legislation? I'm not aware of that. Point of order, Mr Speaker. I didn't ask him whether he was aware. I asked him whether he would regard it as a conflict of interest had they received it. That's a, a fair question. Yeah, I would expect that all ministers would comply with their ob reporting obligations. Point of order, Mr Speaker. The, the Cabinet manual makes it very clear that the Prime Minister determines whether or not they have a conflict of interest. I've asked him whether he would regard that as a conflict of interest or not, and he still hasn't answered it. Um, I expect all ministers to comply with the Cabinet manual and to, and to clear conflicts of interest. Thank you. We'll go on now to question number three. Takatai Tash Kemp. Mr Speaker. Uh, to the Prime Minister, does he stand by his government's statements and policies? Uh, yes, I do, in the context they were given. Supplementary, Mr Speaker. Uh, supplementary question. Just sorry, having to go to my sheet. My deep apologies. Uh, I'm sorry about this. Um, Sorry, I've lost here. Someone's going to have to help me here. My apologies. Hannah, my sincere apologies. I do apologise. Please ask your question. Uh, does he agree with the Ministry of Justice that his government's treaty principle bill to redefine Te Tiriti or Waitangi goes against the spirit of the treaty or the text of the treaty? Uh, the government hasn't received any cabinet paper or any draft uh, treaty principles bill legislation. Supplementary. If he has no intention of supporting the Treaty Principles Bill beyond select committee stages, why has he appointed a new Associate Minister with the specific responsibilities for the bill? Um, so, that the, uh, so that the programme can be progressed? By delegating ministerial responsibility for the Treaty Principles Bill to an ACT Party Minister, is he attempting to distance himself from division that this attempt to erase Te Tiriti or Waitangi has caused, while at the same time leveraging off it? Uh, I reject the question. We're not changing the Treaty of Waitangi, nor treaty settlements. Uh, what we have is a coalition agreement which we're actioning. Supplementary. No, no comments, just a question. If he believes the Treaty Principles Bill is unhelpful and divisive, will he commit to voting against after the select committee stage? Uh, as has been well canvassed, there is no commitment to um, uh, support the bill after first reading. Come now to question number four, the name of Rima Nakli. Thank you, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Minister of Housing and asks... What recent concerns has he raised with Kaina Order regarding vacant homes? Mr Speaker, thank you. Earlier this month I announced that I'd written to the Board of Kaina Ora Homes and Communities 
to make it clear that the number of social houses sitting vacant across New Zealand is completely unacceptable. As of late last year, the total number of vacant social homes in New Zealand was 3,906, 5% of New Zealand's total public housing stock. 20% of new public homes delivered by Kaimo or homes and communities between June 2022 and October 2023 were still sitting vacant in October last year. Mr Speaker, Kainga Ora has been planning and building these new homes for years. They were not a, a surprise. Uh, my expectation is that months out from a new home's completion, they should be getting organised with new tenants who need these homes, and I'm sure they'd be much rather moving into a brand new home rather than sitting in an emergency housing motel room. Supplementary. What else was in the letter to Kainga Ora, homes and communities? Mr Speaker, the letter outlined my disappointment with the numbers and it made clear my expectation that with over 25,000 families on the social housing waitlist, 20,000 more than six years ago, uh, Mr Speaker, social housing homes should not be left empty for a day longer than absolutely necessary. Supplementary. What does this announcement mean for New Zealanders on our social housing waitlist? Mr Speaker, Kainga Ora Homes and Communities' performance impacts every New Zealander, none more so than the thousands on the waitlist living in motel rooms, uh, or sometimes even worse. My letter and the announcement early this month instructs Kainga Ora to focus on efficiently placing tenants into social housing across New Zealand and to work with greater urgency to do so. We are committed to getting Kainga Ora Homes and Communities working well so that it can serve those uh, in the greatest need. Supplementary, Honourable Jenny Anderson. Thank you. Can the Minister please tell me why he is unable to answer how many people in Lower Hutt are presently on the social housing waiting list? Uh, well, that, member, that uh, number is publicly available from memory uh, without checking my information. Uh, as, as of 30th of September 2023, again from memory, the number, is, the number in Lower Hutt City of people on the waitlist was 623. And I would note that that is a five-fold increase compared to October 2017. And Mr Speaker, what other plans does the government have for Kaina Order? Mr Speaker, as I've mentioned previously in this House, the government has commissioned an independent review into Kaina Ora Homes and Communities, which is currently underway. We're looking at financial situation, procurement, asset management, and I'm looking forward to receiving the report in March. As I say, it is critical to the government that Kainga Ora Homes and Communities operates efficiently uh, and effectively and delivers taxpayers value for money. Honourable Jenny Anderson. It's a point of order, Mr Speaker. I have in response to um, written PQ 30561 that the Minister stated he was advised he was unable to provide the information on the lower hut waiting list. So it is news to us now that he suddenly has that figure. Speaking to the point of order, the Honourable Chris Bishop. I know, I know the precise question the member is referring to. The issue is that the member asked for the number as of a certain week. Mr Speaker, the numbers, as the former ministers in the uh, opposition know so well, the numbers are not broken down on the social housing waitlist by week. They are broken down as at the end of a month or at the end of a quarter. The information is published monthly and quarterly. If the member is specific about exactly what she is asking, she will get that information. And the other point I would note is that the information is publicly available every quarter. The member just needs to learn a little website to www.google.com. <laughs> Come now to we'll, we'll come now to question number five. The name of the 
Question number five, the name of the Honourable Grant Roberts. Thank you, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Minister of Finance. Is the reported statement from Treasury correct that the 6.5% or 7.5% savings that are being sought from public service agencies include both departmental and non-departmental spending? If so, has she set any criteria beyond that for what spending is included or not included in the savings? Mr Speaker. Agencies have been asked to make savings from an eligible baseline, which includes departmental and non-departmental spending, with some adjustments and a range of exclusions. For example, uh, in the case of health and education, those agencies have had non-departmental spending excluded from their baseline. In looking for savings, agencies have been asked to focus on low-value programmes, programmes that don't align with government priorities and non-essential back-office functions, including contractor and consultant spend. The member should note that all proposals put forward by agents, sorry, that not all proposals put forward by agencies will necessarily be progressed by ministers. Ministers will exercise their judgment to ensure that we deliver on our goal to deliver better frontline services for New Zealanders. Why has she chosen to include the Defence Force in the public service cuts after originally not doing so? Uh, Mr Speaker, uh, we have chosen a broad range of agencies to take part in the exercise on the basis that we think everyone should be looking to see whether there are areas where they can do things more efficiently and better. In the case of Defence, I would note that we have recognised they face critical cost pressures. And as such, they have been invited to bid for more funding uh, in this budget round. Supplementary. Can she guarantee that the cuts to the Defence Force will not affect the wages of Defence Force staff? Yes. <laughs> Supplementary. Well, well, we're on a roll then. Will she rule out cutting non-departmental funding allocated, allocated to Faikaha, the Ministry for Disabled People? I can assure the member that non-departmental spending has been excluded from the baseline for that agency. Supplementary. Um, how can she reconcile the inclusion of corrections in the departments to be cut with the commitment in the Coalition Agreement with ACT to increase its funding, or is this going to be another example of David Seymour's political impotence? Both can be true. We can both, and they are. And this actually goes to the fundamental issue, which is that we are asking the Department of Corrections to look at what resources may have become tied up in the back office so that we can move them into the front line in our prisons. And it is the case that, in fact, we can both make savings in one area and increase funding in another. And I'd also point this out to the member, and it's something I would urge members opposite to reflect on. You shouldn't simply conflate spending more money with getting results for the people we serve. And this government will not fall for that mistake. Uh, Stuart Smith. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Why is the Minister embarking on the savings programme across the public service? Yeah. Mr Speaker, the core public service headcount has grown by almost 30 per cent since 2018. And government spending is also expected to have increased by around 80 per cent between 2017 and 2024. We have far too few results for New Zealanders to show for that huge increase. 
And our government is determined to restore respect for taxpayer money by stopping wasteful spending, improving value for money and driving resources out of the back office and into frontline public services. Our savings programme in Budget 2024 is designed to find around £1.5 billion in savings per year, which we'll use to deliver on our policy commitments and fund critical cost pressures. Honourable David Seymour. Minister, how did the government manage to spend so much more money and yet not get so much worse results. And is that an example of the previous finance minister's fiscal incontinence? <laughs> well, well, thank you. Well, well, um, no need to uh, go further. That uh, last comment is completely out of order, yeah. and as was the question. Supplementary, the Honourable Grant Robertson. Has the Minister spoken to the Honourable Judith Collins in wake of her comments that she is, quote, going to need money for defence? And what specifically in the defence force is she aiming to cut? I've had many conversations with the Minister for Defence, who shares with me how ignored the defence force felt by the last government. And I can assure New Zealanders that in Minister Collins, the defence force has a very good advocate indeed. Question number six in the name of the Honourable Marama Davidson. My question is to the Prime Minister. Does he stand by his statement, quote, the government has no plan and never has had plans to amend or revise the treaty or the treaty settlements we have all worked so very hard together to achieve, end quote. And if so, why is he proposing to introduce a treaty principles bill that officials say is not supported by the spirit of the treaty or the text of the treaty and for which there has been a lack of consultation with the public? Uh, in answer to the first part of the question, yes, uh, the government has no plan to change the treaty or treaty settlements. And in answer to the second part, it's part of our coalition agreement. Does he have confidence in the ability of his Associate Justice Minister David Seymour to engage with Iwi and Hapu on matters relating to the Treaty Principles Bill? Well, we are yet to see a draft Treaty Principles Bill. Does he think... Does he think it's acceptable that the minister leading this bill, who has called for a discussion on Te Tiriti, didn't even show up to Tūranga Waiwai and didn't show up to Ratana, where Tiriti Kōrero was actually happening? Uh, I know that the minister will be at Waitangi this weekend. What will he say to iwi and hapu leaders on Waitangi Day next week about his plans to introduce a bill that removes Tenoranga Tiratanga rights under Te Tiriti? Uh, what we will be talking about is actually how we improve uh, outcomes for Māori, to have two-thirds of Māori kids not in school regularly, to see Māori disadvantaged economically, to see poor housing stats with half, Māori making up half of, half of people on the social register. Those are the conversations that we're actually having with iwi leaders and with Māori across the country. That's what they care about. Is he concerned by the assessment of Tiriti expert Dale Takitimu, who said the Treaty Principles Bill is, quote, creating unrest, uncertainty, it's creating a whole lot of misinformation amongst the general population that is problematic, and if not, why not? Well, we haven't seen a draft treaty principles bill, but what I can tell you is people should be concerned about improving outcomes for Māori, and that's what this government is single-mindedly focused on. Does... Uh, supplementary. Oh, right on, Winston Peter. Uh, could, I, could I ask the uh, Prime Minister as to whether or not he knows of anyone who has said seriously in this parliament that they're getting rid of the Treaty of Waitangi. And, second, as to whether or not there was a thing called consultation 
that happened on the 14th of October last year called the election. Here, here. Answer the first part of the question, no. Does he agree with former National Prime Minister Jim Bolger that a referendum on the treaty principles is, quote, a bloody stupid idea? And if so, why is he introducing a bill to enable this in the first place? Uh, part of our coalition agreement, which we've talked about before, is that this government is going to support the treaty principles bill through the first reading. Come now to question number seven. In the name of the Honourable Willie Jackson. Mr. Speaker, can I ask the Minister what plans, if any, uh, does the government have to discuss its policies at Waitangi next week? It's a kumangai. He patai wede wero hiningaro faka hara hoki tera. Kaore kore, ka nui hoki ngā kōrero mō ngā kaupapa here a tēnei kāwana tanga haumi. Menga mahu e tanga paurirawa a te kāwana tanga tawhito. Ki te atea, ki te kauta, ki te pai kōrero, ki te pari kā rangaranga, kā rangona e aku taringa ki te aku karurongo. Mr Speaker, Mr Speaker, o rau e ki te whakarongo ki tō tātou reo, mihi ana ki te minata kei te tautoko tō tātou reo, mā ta kōrero i te reo, mihi ana ki a koe e hoa, engari, ka kōrero pākea hau ki a mōhio, the fare kato. Mr. Speaker, I'm just making to our yes, minister because it's, outside the it's, it's wonderful just that he's speaking our language. Stick to a question, will he? But can I, can I, I'm just saying I want to speak English so everybody understands and ask him this. Who should New Zealanders believe? Minister David Seymour, who says there is no partnership with Māori, uh, or the Prime Minister, who confirmed today that he views the Treaty of Waitangi as akin to a partnership between the Crown and Māori, which has been the position of every Prime Minister since 1984. And will the Prime Minister and the Minister of Māori Development reiterate that at Waitangi? Uh, the Honourable David Seymour, point Speaker, of order. I hesitate to interrupt, but I don't believe I've ever said there's no partnership with Māori. I have said that the treaty is not a partnership between races and shouldn't be characterised that way. It's a, 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 a fair defence of a position that was put. Put the question again without that in it. <laughs> Mr Speaker, from the, from the beginning, who, who should New Zealanders believe? The Honourable David Seymour, who rejects that there is a partnership uh, with Māori, or the Prime Minister, who confirmed today he views the Treaty of Waitangi as akin to a partnership between the Crown and Māori, which has been the position of every Prime Minister, National and Labour, Good. since 1984. Yeah, and will the Prime Minister reiterate that at Waitangi? Honourable Tamapariki. New Zealanders should take the time to learn about Te Tiriti or Waitangi, the Treaty of Waitangi, and come to their own views. Point of order, Mr Speaker. Point of order. Point of order, Mr Speaker. I don't... I believe the minister went anywhere near the the, the question or, or the answer. Well, with no, with all due respect, you asked him uh, to take to to venture an opinion on two particular positions. Uh, he then answered you by saying that all New Zealanders should come to their own position on those, and I think that's not unreasonable. Yeah, thank, thanks for that, uh, Mr. Speaker. No <laughs> 
Well, if you want further clarification, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kia ora, kia ora, Mr Speaker. Um, Mr Speaker, does the Minister agree with these very respectable and well-supported National Party members, Dame Jenny Shipley, Jim Bolger, Doug Graham, and Chris Finlayson, who all support the partnership principle and uh, adamant that we should get rid of the treaty principles boom. And is he planning on discussing that at Waitangi? It's a mangai. As uh, the Prime Minister has uh, reminded us today, we have not yet seen a treaty principles bill being brought in front of the members. Uh, supplementary, right on awards for Peter. Could I ask the Minister as to whether this is the problem about trying to establish what the relationship means? Or is it a fact that on the 5th of February 1840, no one in the British Empire upon which the sun never set, including the people living next to Queen Victoria and Buckingham Palace, was in partnership with the Queen? How could the Murray be two days later? So it's a relationship we're working on now, not the fiction of some people in this Parliament. Uh, Honourable uh, Tama Potaka. Uh, it's a mangoi. Uh, my response to that uh, reflection and question uh, by the Deputy Prime Minister is we reiterate that Waitangi, the Treaty of Waitangi is an absolute sacrosanct document fundamental to this country's past, present and future and it will help us get the country back on track after what we've ended up with in the last three years. Mr. Mr. Jackson. Mr. Speaker, is the, does the Minister's iwi um, uh, support uh, the Treaty Principles Bill, and will he be discussing that with his iwi at Waitangi? No, no, I'm sorry, that, point, that question is out of order. He's only got uh, responsibility for his ministerial position. Uh, the member can ask another question inside his allocation. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Is the Minister and the Prime Minister planning to attend and participate in any of the forum tents at Waitangi? And if so, which one? And if not, why not? Honourable Tama Potaka. It's a mangai. Uh, it is scheduled that I will be participating in the forum tent at Waitangi, and I look forward to the humble hospitality of Manaakitanga that Tatai Tokoro is renowned for. Kia ora tato. Question. Oh, sorry. Uh, sub, is this a supplementary? Yeah. Yep. Uh, the Honourable. To Jones. the Minister for Māori Crown Relations, Te Arafiti, can the Minister confirm? During the Waitangi period of time, the government will be focused on concrete, measurable, KPI-orientated results for our rangatahi, housing and health, rather than transcendental notions contained in the Pua Pua United Nations report. Yeah. Yeah, the line, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> you can't answer that. It's such a stupid question. <laughs> no, 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 the, uh, the problem the member has got is that uh, the minister is the minister for Crown Murray relations. Uh, therefore, he must have some responsibility for uh, the government's view on the documents cited by the Honourable Shane Jones. Therefore, the question stands. Honourable Tama Potak. It's a mangai in my Whanganui dialect, Ana. Yes, we will be absolutely committed to ruthlessly focusing on the outcomes of education, housing, health, and many other things that have been left behind for our various Māori communities throughout the Motu. Tēnā tato. Speaker. Come now to question number eight, uh, James Meagher. Speaker, to the Minister of Local Government, what recent announcements has he made about the voting age for local government? Mr Speaker. Mr Speaker, 
Oh, sorry. Um, some of you brown. Happy New Year. Uh, Mr Speaker, on the 26th of January, I announced that this government will not proceed with the previous government's plans to lower the voting age to allow 16 and 17-year-olds to vote in local elections. Changing the voting age for local government is not a priority for this government. We want to see councils focus on efficient delivery of local infrastructure and services for their communities. Supplementary. What actions has he taken to give action to the government's intentions on this bill? Mr Speaker, I have written to the chairperson of the Justice Committee to inform him that the coalition government does not intend to support the electoral lowering voting age for local elections and polls legislation bill through further parliamentary stages and requested that the committee ends consideration of this bill. We intend to focus local government on providing good quality local infrastructure, delivering public services at the least possible cost to their communities and businesses. Supplementary. Uh, James Megan. Why is lowering the voting age not a priority for this government? Well, Mr Speaker, this would be a distraction for local government when they should be focused on making sure that they are efficiently delivering local infrastructure and services for their communities. Lowering the voting age is not a priority for this government. Who is correct? The min Who is correct? The minister when he said it'd be a waste of Parliament's time to be putting a of progressing a bill and hearing select committee submissions on a bill that we are not going to be supporting, or the Prime Minister when he said we will pursue a treaty principles bill to select committee and that's as far as it will go. Well, Mr Speaker, this is not, lowering the voting age is not a priority for this government, but we have made coalition commitments around the treaty principles bill which we will progress. And true. James Meagher. Does the Minister think that the voting age for central and local government should be the same? Yes, it is important that there is a clear and constant age for voting in a democracy. A split age would create an imbalance in, in, in terms of the voting ages between central and local government. That is not a priority for this government. And furthermore, the last government could not conjure up one single reason why lowering the voting age was a good idea. Question number Eight, uh, nine, in the name of the Honourable Dr Asheville. Thank you, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Associate Minister of Health and reads, does she stand by all her statements and actions? Mr Speaker, yes, in particular those that relate to my absolute commitment to the smoke-free 2025 targets and to providing practical, targeted help so that smokers who are addicted can quit. Is it correct that she indicated she wanted advice from the Ministry of Health on a tobacco excise tax freeze in a document she annotated and signed on 20 December? Mr Speaker, yes, in relation to a range of advice, there was a component that asked for the implications relating to the smoke-free excise, the excise tax freeze. Supplementary. In that case, why did she deny requesting specific advice on an excise tax freeze for cigarettes in an interview with Guy on Espiner? Mr Speaker, I did not um, state that I had, I had not ad requested specific advice. I had sought advice on a range of issues, which included that one. 
supplementary, uh, Jamie Arbuck. Thank you. To the Minister, what do the latest statistics say about the smoking numbers? Mr Speaker, I'm pleased to announce that the latest New Zealand Health Survey figures released in December show that the daily smoking rates amongst adults um, have more than halved in the last decade from 573,000 in 2011 to 12 to 284,000 this year. Last year, smoking rates have reduced significantly in the last two years. Another 55,000 people stopped smoking in the last year alone. This drop in daily smokers is reflected across all ethnic groups, but significantly drops have seen in Māori and Pacific peoples, where we have seen drops from 37.7% to 17.1% and 22.6% to 6.4% respectively between 2011-12 and 2022-23. This supports the reason for continuing on the trajectory that we are on. Mr Speaker, supplementary, is she seriously saying that she requested advice on the tobacco excise tax freeze, but because the document canvassed other matters, she was being truthful when she denied having sought the advice to the media? I, I was being truthful at the time, Mr Speaker, in relation to that statement. Being offered something and asking for something are two separate matters. Was the Prime Minister wrong when he said in statements to Radio New Zealand this morning that she made a mistake? I would never say that the Prime Minister was wrong, Mr Speaker. Uh, right Honourable Christopher Hipkins, a point of order. Earlier on in question time today, I asked the Prime Minister whether the government had sought any advice on freezing excise on tobacco, and the Prime Minister indicated that he was not aware of that. We've now had it confirmed by the Minister that, in fact, she did ask for that advice. And there are media reports where the Prime Minister has been publicly discussing that. Standing orders make it clear that if a Minister makes a mistake in their answers, they have to come back to the House and correct that at the earliest available opportunity. Fortunately, the Prime Minister is still in the House and therefore should be able to correct it at now at the earliest available opportunity. Yes, but unfortunately, unfortunately the answer was that there was a range of advice uh, in the paper concerned. So I think the, the, the pedantics of how it was answered are a different matter. I'll hear from the Honourable Right Honourable Mr Peters. Mr Speaker, you've had two questions, and one from the point of order, that don't seem to be listening to what was said. If you request advice and get other than that advice, an extra advice, it does not mean that you requested the second lot of advice that you didn't seek in the first place. It's not complicated, and words do matter in this Parliament, and surely they do matter to the media, who have so badly reported this matter in the first place. Uh, Mr yeah. Speaker, no, I believe we are, um, the issue at, under discussion here is whether uh, a minister made a decision uh, in writing to seek, uh, seek advice on a particular matter. It is not a matter of receiving, as, um, as the Deputy Prime Minister has suggested, unsolicited advice. I make the suggestion that people... Uh, uh, consider the hand side of all of this and then make uh, any position they want to take to the Speaker in the usual manner. Uh, come now, question number 10, Paolo Garcia. Mr Speaker, my question is to the Minister of Education. What is the government fo focusing on for the start of the school year? 
The Honourable Erica Sanford. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Uh, Mr Speaker, as schools start back for 2024, there will be a relentless focus on lifting student achievement. This government's ambitious target of getting 80% of our tamariki to curriculum by the time they finish intermediate by 2030 is our North Star. Recent release of provisional NCA data showed for the third year rates of achievement have declined and we are going to turn this around. As we begin the school year, I am focused on strengthening our curriculum to be knowledge rich and underpinned by the science of learning, ensuring we spend enough time on the basics and that we are removing distractions in the class so we set our kids up for success at school. Supplementary. Um, what can parents expect will be in place for students this term? Well, Mr Speaker, around New Zealand, students are returning or starting school this week to find new timetables in place that mean that no matter where they go to school or who their teacher is, they have consistent delivery of at least an hour a day of reading, writing and maths. And I'm already starting to hear stories from teachers and their, with their new timetables promoting literacy and numeracy. New regulations are in place around the use of cell phones at school, requiring them to be off and away all day. School policies must be in place for the start of Term 2, but it is my expectation that many of these plans will be implemented by the start of Term 1 so that students can focus on their learning and interact with their friends. Supplementary. Um, what progress has been made by the Ministerial Advisory Group reviewing the curriculum? Mr Speaker, the Ministerial Advisory Group had their first full-day meeting over the Christmas break. This group brings together curriculum and subject matter experts who will ensure that our curriculum is knowledge-rich, it's detailed, grounded in the science of learning and internationally comparable. Their work programme is well underway and on track to be tested with the sector later this year so that we can remain on track with the scheduled curriculum rollout dates. Supplementary. What feedback has the Minister received about the changes in the 100-day plan? Mr Speaker, I've received lots of positive feedback about our plans, but in particular, an Auckland High School principal wrote to me saying that he is excited about our plans, that the cell phone ban will, quote, uh, remove a major distraction to learning, reduce cyberbullying and promote social interaction between students, and that a timetabled focus on the basic subjects will ultimately lift educational achievement for all students. And furthermore, News Hub reported a Kashmir, a Kashmir high school principal saying, uh, and I quote, it's not healthy for students to come to school and sit and be glued to their digital device. Come now to question number 11 in the name of uh, the Honourable Jenny Anderson. Uh, thank you, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Minister of Police. Does he stand by his guarantee that there will be no cuts or reprioritisations to the police budget in order to deliver 500 extra police? And if so, what advice has he received, if any, on the impact of the proposed 6.5 to 7.5 per cent cut to the police budget would have on pub public safety? Yes and none. Is it the government's policy to deliver 500 extra police within two years as per the coalition agreement with New Zealand First? The government's policy is to deliver 500 additional police officers over the term of this government, which is three years. Um, and we've been very clear that we understand the challenges around that because as the incoming government we discovered that it was difficult to fill existing recruit wings, that um, the Australians are here recruiting our police officers, and we've got lots of senior police officers that are coming up to retirement. 
Can the Minister be clear that he is walking back on the coalition agreement that is undertaken to New Zealanders that he will deliver 500 additional police within two years? No, I'm saying that we have, as the incoming government, we have committed to 500 additional police officers over the term of this government, which, yes, is three years. And that is, and that, and that is, and that is, and that is, well, if the, if the Minister had listened in the House last year, you would have heard me talking to this issue, is the fact that as the incoming government and the advice that we got is it became immediately apparent that there was big issues around recruiting. They can't fill current recruit wings. Um, the Australians are here recruiting our police officers and we've got senior police officers that are getting ready to retire. Is this yet another example of broken promises and will the 6.5% cut to the police budget affect frontline services like it did last time National was in government and see frontline officers pulled off the street to doing non-sworn duties? No. I think that uh, as the incoming government again, it became very apparent that the police are under severe financial pressure um, because of the actions of the previous government. Um, we've been very clear that we're going to deliver world-class frontline services. And the, and, the police, and the police, like every other agency, is asked to look at their corporate services, their back-office services, to see whether or not um, cuts can be achieved. Will he commit that any cost savings found in the police budget will remain with police as stated in National's back pocket boost policy documents? Well, I can, I can um, confirm for the Minister that we're going to make sure that the front line are resourced properly and actually delivering the service that this country, that this country deserves. We've got, a big, we've got a big job to do and the police have got a big job to do in reducing what has been a massive increase in violent crime in this country over the last six years, and we are committed in doing that. Thank you. Uh, question number 12, the Honourable James Shaw. Thank you, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Prime Minister. Does he stand by all of his government's statements and policies? Uh, yes, in the context they were given, but can I also just extend to that member congratulations uh, for uh, a fantastic career in Parliament here over the last nine years. Uh, he announced his obviously retirement today. Uh, I want to say I hope you know you're leaving here with some pretty lasting uh, legislation in place with the net zero legislation. You should be very, very proud about it. Uh, that's going to be enduring. It's going to long, last long after you've gone. And um, I just acknowledge also it's a very sad day for the Green Party actually having lost their last true environmentalist. Well, Mr. Speaker, in now response, speaker. Uh, can I just thank the, uh, the Prime Minister? The, the now Prime sure may, of course, make a, a short response to that, uh, but uh, perhaps not focus on the last bit. No, thank you, Mr. Speaker. Um, can I just thank the Prime Minister for his kind words and say in response, good luck. Uh, Mr. Speaker, uh, is his government reversing New Zealand's commitment, uh, which it pushed for and agreed to at last year's conference of the South Pacific Regional Fisheries Management Organisation to protect 70% of high biodiversity areas, including seamounts, in the South Pacific? Had any change to that yet? Okay. Uh, is he concerned about New Zealand's international reputation when organisations like the Deep Sea Conservation Coalition have said that, quote, the New Zealand government may now be the main obstacle to a proposed conservation measure that its own scientists spent the past year developing. 
Um, I disagree with that characterisation. This is a government that's going to be focused on lowering emissions and, and making sure we meet our climate change commitments. Well, does he agree with the previous national government's Minister for Fisheries who said that when the uh, SPRFMO convention was ratified under the John Key national government that, quote, we need to protect these important fisheries for future generations. Ratification shows our strong commitment to sustainable management and ensures that we have important influence on the work of the SPRFMO. And if so, is he concerned that New Zealand is the only country still bottom trawling in the Pacific? This is going to be a government that will balance sustainable fishing along with good economic opportunity. How can he justify the proposal by New Zealand to allow bottom trawling in the South Pacific to catch up to three years' worth of total allowable catch in a single season, up to 200% above annual catch limits, when this is far more than the 10% annual carryover allowed under New Zealand's domestic law? Again, as I said before, this will be a government that will balance environmental goals uh, with, with making sure we maximise commercial opportunities. Does he have confidence in his Minister for Oceans and Fisheries' ability to represent New Zealand's long-term bipartisan positions, including those advanced by previous national-led governments on international fisheries management, when the Worldwide Fund for Nature have said that there is a lot of concern about New Zealand resigning from the international rules-based order. Historically, New Zealand has been seen as a good-faith operator, and for a country to turn away from a decision taken by consensus is quite significant. Yes. Challenge. I've received an urgent debate request from the Honourable Mariba Davidson and Ricardo Mendes March. Uh, seeking Understanding Order 399 to debate the Government's decision on funding for the UNRWA. This application did not make out a convincing case for setting aside the business of the House to debate this matter. The application is therefore declined.